Our Father, we're grateful that you have assembled us here today in your presence from, from different parts of the country and the world, and we're so thankful that we are really one body in Jesus Christ wherever we may call home. We're thankful, Lord, that we can share together around the Word of God, which is literally the strength of our lives, the light unto our path. And Father, I pray that our eyes will be open to see that light and our wills will be committed to following the path that you reveal before us. Lord, strengthen us in our study of your word today that we might be workmen who need not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of God. We commit ourselves to you for these moments. Pray you'll strengthen and bless. And we ask for your blessing upon the service which is occurring right now too, that you'll be present in everything that transpires. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, there's, there's some chairs. You mean trying to steal our chairs? <laughs> if you will open to Genesis chapter 6, we'll read beginning at verse 5. Genesis 6, 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things to birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. We began this passage last week at the end of class, and we noted that in this particular passage, it begins with a terrible indictment. The statement is made that the Lord saw the wickedness of man, and it was great. And you'll notice the emphasis in, in the latter part of verse 5, that every intent of the thoughts of man of his heart was evil continually. Every intent evil continually. Wow. Does it sound like anything you're familiar with today? God had sent prophets one after the other in the, probably a great deal or several at least of, of the men named there were prophets. At least we knew, know that Enoch was a prophet of God and certainly Noah was a prophet of God in terms of being a preacher of righteousness and we'll note later the specific statement in 2 Peter to that effect. But in spite of this, wickedness has literally exploded across the land so that throughout the world of that particular day, evil reigned. And we emphasized at the end of class that evil begins in the mind. It's the thought that leads to the deed. The deed is simply carrying out the sin that has already been born in the mind. And we read those passages where Jesus makes this quite clear. That as a man thinks, for example, after a woman, he's already committed an act of adultery in that sense. Proverbs 23, verse 7, we don't need to turn there. It simply says in the first part of that verse, For as a man thinks within himself 
so is he. Through our thoughts, we give a foothold to the enemy. As Christians, the enemy has no right in our lives, but we can grant to him a foothold by thinking the thoughts that are fleshly and the thoughts that are evil, and by dwelling on those things. And, and in Philippians, as we did read, I think the last thing we read last time was the passage in Philippians which tells us to focus our thoughts on whatever is good and pure and true and lovely, good report. Th that's a conscious effort that we have to make. It doesn't happen by accident. Just because we're Christians and we wander down the path of life doesn't mean we think good thoughts. Because we have living within us our flesh. Or we're living within the flesh, I guess we could say. And our flesh leans towards the temptations of the world. And the enemy comes along and whispers in our ear. Uh, we're not immune to that as Christians. And as a result, we can think evil thoughts. We have to consciously decide and choose to think good thoughts. We have to put ourselves in a place where good things are coming into us. Not that we live a Pollyannish life. But we have to choose to expose ourselves to what is good and right and lovely. Sometimes in the name of, of being up to date, we expose our, ourselves to things that we don't really need to expose ourselves to. Or we don't stick our heads in the sand and say there's no evil out there, everything's really uh, good. That's, that's the liberal theologian who says, you know, actually we're bringing the millennium here to planet Earth because of the spread of the good news. And of course, to them, the good news is, you know, do unto others as you have them do unto you, which is from Scripture. But, but not to have the strength that enables us to do that in the form of the Holy Spirit who dwells within the heart of a believer who has truly been regenerated. We can become so tainted as believers that we become like salt that has lost its savor. And the Scripture teaches us that if that is true, it's good for nothing. So we must purposefully choose to expose ourselves to those things which generate good thoughts, those things which are of good report, those things which are true and lovely and honest, as we read there in Philippians chapter 4. This passage tells us that the human race became so vile. In verse 6 we read that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. Now one of the things we need to keep emphasizing as we look at passages like this is the fact that the scripture teaches over and over again from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Revelation that God is immutable. That is, that God does not change. So as we read this passage, we can't think the way we think relative to God here. God is not fickle. God is not capricious. God doesn't just one moment think one thought, then the next moment think an opposite thought. God doesn't act this way at one point in time and act another way at a different point in time under the same circumstances. God is not like that. Men and women are. And the gods that men and women invent, they are. But the true God is not. So as we look at this passage and we look at the term sorry, that God was sorry, and we look at the term grieved, we have to realize that these are anthropopathic terms. That is, that they describe God's attitudes, his emotions, and his actions as they seem to us, as they appear to us. 
our finite minds. It looks as if God is sorry or it looks as if God is grieved, but he is not in the sense that we are. That is, he is not changed in his ideas. God is not admitting here he made a mistake. You know, oh, blew that one. <laughs> I shouldn't have made man. I better go to plan B now. No, I think we must always remember that God knew man would sin, and he knew that he would have to destroy the world with a flood before he ever created the heavens and the earth. The big question is not how come God did it this way, but why knowing what would happen, did he do it at all? That's where our finite minds cannot really grasp what God has done. I think it's important for us to know, as this passage emphasizes, that God is not unmoved in his heart by our rebellion, by the rebellion of the human race. God does care. He doesn't sit up there in his heaven and look down as, as like a great computer or a machine, unmoved by what happens. Even though he knows it's going to happen, he still is moved by it. God is an emotional being. You know, we think of emotion within, within ourselves, and we know our emotions are often, are often uh, misguided, as Dr. Dobson says in his book, Our Emotions, Can You Trust Them? And basically the answer is no, for the most part. We have to think through and analyze them and, and bring them into order with the teaching of Scripture. God has an unfathomable love, a love that is so much greater than ours that we cannot comprehend it. And that love produces within him emotion. And that emotion appears to us as sorrow. That emotion appears to us as grief, as it's stated in this particular passage. But why? Because God is moved by the fact that people are rejecting the joy, the peace, the happiness that he offers, and instead they're choosing unhappiness, joylessness, and ultimate damnation because they're rejecting his truth and turning away from his love. It's important for us to remember that although God has all foreknowledge and that although God has a sovereign plan that is in action, when, when we read the scripture and we see what happened in the creation story and then we look at what's going to happen as it's described for us in Revelation, it is inevitable. These things will happen because God's sovereign plan is in action and we as human beings, no matter what we try to invent or what we invent or what we try to do, are not going to alter God's sovereign plan. But we must remember that his blessings and his cursings are conditional. They are applied upon the basis of human response. Whether we receive a blessing or whether we receive a curse from God depends on how we respond to him. Now, God knows ahead of time how we will respond, but we don't. And God functions as if he didn't know from our perspective. This, of course, doesn't make God changeable because part of his character is immutability. I mean, after all, if you're perfect in every way, how can you change? The only possible change from perfection would be to imperfection, and that's impossible with God. God has always offered blessing 
upon obedience and cursing upon disobedience. Let's look at what Jeremiah the prophet says relative to this. Jeremiah chapter 18. One of the very important passages of Scripture, helping us to understand a little bit behind the scenes as to why God does what God does. In the first few verses, he describes going to the potter's house and watching the potter form a vessel, and the vessel had an imperfection in it, so the potter squashed it and formed a new vessel from it. Verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good which I had promised, with which I had promised to bless it. Now, again, as we look at that passage in Jeremiah, certainly comes to our mind uh, the words of the prophet Jonah, right? Jonah went to Nineveh and he cried out to that great city that destruction was coming and then he sat on the hillside to watch the destruction come. And he was very unhappy when this destruction didn't come. Because obviously a prophet who prophesies and it doesn't come about becomes a false prophet. But he wasn't a false prophet because he was simply proclaiming judgment, but God said that if people will turn, he will change the plan. Now, that's not changing God's ultimate plan. I mean, His ultimate plan is that if we do right, there's blessing. If we do wrong, there's cursing. That's it. The choice is ours. So if the nation chose to steer from wrong to right, then the curse that was coming will be changed to a blessing in human, from human perspective, not in God's perspective. God knew what would happen. Now, if you study the history of, of Assyria, you know that it simply was a, a momentary postponement, really, because Nineveh, although did not suffer destruction at that time, within about a century and a half of that time, was utterly and totally destroyed at the hands of the Babylonians because the nation did not continue in its repentance and it went on its way to terrorize the whole Near Eastern world. And, and it served as God's whip upon Israel, but of course, they did not turn to the God of Israel to see that God was using them. They followed their own gods, and so punishment ultimately came upon Nineveh. And of course, you, you study through the history of the nation of Israel, and when they repented, blessing came. And when they went after the idols, then troubles came, and nations such as Assyria and Babylon came into the history of Israel. It's important for us to know and, and, of course, we remember the passage in Second Chronicles 7, which says, If my people who are called by my name will turn from their wicked ways and will pray, then God will heal and God will bring good. Because the nation has chosen to go the way God has ordained for good and for right and for blessing. So it is not God who changes, it is we who change. 
from the ultimate path to destruction to the path for life. But as we look at this passage in Genesis, we don't find that happening, do we? Total depravity has swept through the human race. Mankind has fallen from being made in the image of God and with no imperfections into, to a creature that has fallen, to a creature who has opened his life to the enemy. And the human race has, eject, has rejected God's word and therefore God is sending a cleansing flood. I think it's important for us to always remember the parallel. The cleansing flood of water can be compared to the cleansing flood of the blood of Christ. That blood washes us from sin and cleanses us so we don't have to face the destruction that the people in those days faced, of course, first of all with the water that, as Tennessee Ernie Ford sings, washed them all away to the ultimate destruction, of course, of the second death. Now the question might be asked and is asked by some, why were all the animals swept up in this? Or so many of them anyway. Why, why did the flood wipe out birds and animals and creeping things from off this planet? What had they done? Well, the answer can only be arrived at by speculation, and of course it isn't really an answer as a result. It's an idea. First of all, logically, when you think about the fact that mankind had probably spread fairly widely over planet Earth by this time, uh, mankind tends to be somewhat nomadic, uh, and, and we tend to move. What is it in America? We change our residence every three to five years, something like that, on, on, typically. Some people a whole lot more often than that. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't realize how blessed I was to know that in the first 17 years of my life I lived in the same house and never knew a different house till I left home. I thought that was normal. Until <laughs> I ran across people who, let, who, who changed residence about every year of their life, you know, up to the time they graduated from high school. And I went to the same elementary school, the same junior high, the same senior high. All, I mean, you know, I never changed schools except when I was supposed to. Uh, <laughs> all through that period of time. And I didn't have to face what some people faced in going into a new school and, you know, trying to make new friends. The animals would be swept up because man, mankind had been so widely placed. Now, you, you obviously know that uh, as, as I view this, and I think the Scripture rules out any possibility of a flood less than universal. Now, I realize there are schools of thought in the Christian circle that teach otherwise, but to do so uh, has to profane Scripture. You have to uh, totally warp the, the, the clear teaching of Genesis and several other pa passages of Scripture to arrive at anything else. I mean, just as we'll see when we get there, to cover the highest mountain with water, wherever the highest mountain was, let's make the highest mountain nothing more than Mount Hermon, which is only a little less than 10,000 feet high. There's no way you have a local flood if you cover little old Mount Hermon. So as we go along here, it's obvious that uh, the teaching of Scripture applies to a universal flood, not just universal to mankind, but universal to the world. And that's why the animals were carried in there, because as the flood went around to wipe out all mankind, the animals were obviously going to be impacted. They couldn't help but be impacted by this destructive flood. 
Some speculate that uh, the reason it happened, though, was that many of the animals had already uh, evolved, if you use the word uh, um, properly, had, had mutated into monsters. For example, the dinosaurs. That the dinosaurs had developed and they'd become a great threat to, to the human race. Well, if the dinosaurs really were, uh, what they have been portrayed to be from the skeletons that have been uplifted and, and then trying to speculate from that what life was like, they were pretty frightening. And of course, if you've ever watched any of those movies in which they use the little rubber monsters and, and uh, put people in there and you're chased around by Tyrannosaurus Rex, why, well, you know, it would have been pretty terrible. <laughs> Must be really hilarious to the people who are making those movies, you know. <clears throat> you have to be a good actor to really be frightened. <laughs> what, what is really great is when they take a close-up of an iguana. You know, iguanas are a real living lizard. And, and it, it looks pretty bad when you blow it up so it looks like it's 50 feet tall. You know, it's pretty scary. Actually, they're kind of scary when you see them in real, in real life. I got a slide of uh, Steve Saint, who's... Uh, missionary pilot over in uh, Africa today, holding an iguana by its tail. He's holding about like so, and the head dangles just about to the ground, you know. Quite a, quite a creature. Uh, they, they live in Ecuador, and they also live out in the Galapagos Islands. That's where they're most noted for being. But they live in, in Ecuador itself, and, you know, they're trotting across the highway, and people break for iguanas. <laughs> It's unusual because in Ecuador they don't much break for anything. <laughs> but I guess iguanas don't pay much attention to the horns, so they have to break. But, but many felt, feel that the destruction of the animals was purposeful to eliminate creatures that had developed which were undesirable to continue in existence on planet Earth. Now that's pure speculation that cannot be proven from Scripture. Verse 8, though, of this passage is really where the crux of it rests. Because this particular verse is the only small ray of hope in the first 12 verses of this entire chapter. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, it does not say in that passage that Noah was perfect or that Noah was sinless. It simply says that he found grace, he found favor in the eyes of God. He found favor because he believed God. And the scripture says this of Noah as it says it of Abraham and others. He believed God, therefore God reckoned it to him as righteousness. God imputed righteousness to him because he believed God. Now, we realize at the same time it is God who enabled him to believe God. We come to saving faith because we believe God, but God enables us to believe. He opens our eyes so that we might see. This does not deny our choice, but it helps us to see the role that God plays in bringing us to faith. Let's look at the passage in Hebrews. We continually are turning to Hebrews, particularly the 11th chapter, for obvious reasons. Hebrews 11, verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, of course, is one of the key passages of Scripture. 
in understanding the role of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Now that does not mean is in the sense that everybody thinks that there is a God. That passage means that we believe that he is what he says he is in this book. We believe him to be what he claims to be in the scripture. That is what is meant in Hebrews 11. Many say, oh yeah, I believe there's a God. Does that mean they believe in God? No, not at all. You know, it says the, de the devils believe and they tremble. Sure they believe. I mean, how could they otherwise believe? I mean, they've seen the hand of Almighty God and they are in their condition because he has so condemned them. So it is by faith, therefore, that Noah, being warned by God about things not seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the, of the righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Noah. He believed God and therefore he carried out what God commanded him to do. And because of that faith, he became the heir of righteousness. And it is by that same faith that you and I become heirs of righteousness and by no other route. Some like to make a great big gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, but I don't see it. Noah came to the Lord by faith. You and I come to the Lord by faith. He may not have known the name Jesus Christ or known of the cross, but he knew the God who was the God who would hang on that cross. And it is the same. He was looking forward to the event. We look back to the event. It's still the watershed of all history. And it is by the blood of Christ that Noah was saved, just as it is by the blood of Christ that we are saved. Apparently, from what it says in the Scripture here, he was the only one amongst the millions, tens of millions, who knows how many people were alive at that time. Only one who believed God. The only one. And he, in turn, would preach righteousness. And the only ones to accept that preaching would be his own family. The only ones who would believe and would enter into the ark would be his wife, his three sons, and three daughters-in-law. And, of course, nothing is really said about their personal faith. But at least they expressed enough faith to get in the ark. Look at 2 Peter 2, verse 5, if you will. 2 Peter 2, 5. Well, let's read verse 4 to get continuity here. 2 Peter 2, 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Noah was a preacher of righteousness. Obviously, he didn't go about secretly building the ark. 
And during that time, he proclaimed the truth. Why are you building this ark, Noah? <laughs> because God is sending a flood to wash the world clean of sin. And of course, we assume that the people laughed at Noah. Sure, Noah. I mean, the man was 600 years old. He had reason, you know, to, to begin to slip a few cogs. <laughs> and, you know, as he was building this boat, many probably thought, oh, this poor guy, it's a good thing he's got enough cash to uh, pay the work crew. But, uh, you know, this, he's, he's building this great white elephant out here on the plains. But all the time he witnessed by his life, by this ark as it slowly went together, and by his word that God was going to judge this world. And we live in a day and age where the same thing is happening. And people are preaching, but so many are going obliviously along their way, laughing, oh, sure. And they've thought up all kinds of philosophies and even liberal theology to, to negate. I was listening the other day. I think it was on the radio. Somebody was talking about uh, Aldous Huxley and one of the reasons why he believed the way he believed and he, he said, I don't care what the evidence is, I believe the way I believe because I want nothing to inhibit my sexual freedom. See, that was his God. And so that is really the driving force behind those that are so ardently humanistic today. It's because they want their own freedom as they view freedom, and they want to go their route, and they don't want any God out there to hinder it. They don't want to be responsible to a sovereign one, especially one who is righteous. Now, if he was like the gods of the Phoenicians, that would be wonderful. The gods of the Phoenicians were uh, hedonistic. The gods of the Phoenicians or the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Greeks or whoever you want to talk about, their gods were the paragons of lust and vice. Great. It's easy to worship a god like that. That's what your flesh is already telling you to do, and that's what the world is telling you to do and the devil is telling you to do. But to worship a God who stands in direct opposition to all of these things, that's the hard thing to do. And you and I today, if, if we have tried to live faithfully before the Lord, we know a little bit about what Noah faced. Maybe not to the extent that he faced it, because he and his three sons and daughters-in-law and one wife, one wife certainly, uh, were the only ones. Now, of course, he wouldn't necessarily know that if God hadn't told him because he wasn't aware of everybody on planet Earth. Certainly, it spread over thousands and thousands of miles of the planet, so he couldn't know what was going on 5,000 miles away, whether there were any righteous persons there. But God told him, I'm going to destroy everybody except you and those who get in the ark. And he, of course, had some hope others might join him in the ark because he had other relatives, certainly, that were alive. Have we ever thought about the fact that that Noah probably had brothers and sisters. When you go back and read, his father, it says, had other sons and daughters. So he had cousins and he had nephews and nieces, and certainly he pled with all of them, but did any of them heed? Not a one. I mean, even Muhammad had greater success than that as he went out to preach his weird teaching. I mean, he began to win members of his own family. And then other people joined. You know, you look at Mohammedanism, you wonder, why? 
especially if you're a woman. Why? No, there's nothing in Mohammedanism to appeal to, appeal to a woman. It, it's a very male-oriented, male chauvinistic religion. And yet, people you know, adhere to it. Why? Because the flesh says yes, the world says yes, the devil says yes. Let's look at Genesis 6-9. Genesis 6-9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way upon the earth. Now when we look at that, we have to understand when it says earth, it doesn't mean the planet was corrupt, it simply means the people on the planet were corrupt. And when it says all flesh, it doesn't mean uh, the bluebirds and the turtles and the fish, it means human flesh. These are the records of the generation, generations of Noah. The generations of Adam, you see, are about to be eliminated, wiped out with the exception of eight persons. Noah is about to become sort of a new Adam in the sense that he will become the father of the entire human race propagated since the flood. You always have to kind of picture the human race. It begins with Adam and it kind of mushrooms out. Then all of a sudden, you have a new pyramid starting out under Noah. The human race comes, spreads out from Adam and then suddenly comes to a complete end with exception of one person and his family. And so a second pyramid then launches out from the first one. You and I are descendants from Adam and Eve, but we're also descendants of Mr. and Mrs. Noah. So the human race has had two beginnings, if you will, physically. And Noah becomes thus the ancestor of us all. You know, just to think about that. Why in the world do we, as human beings, look down our noses at somebody of a different race or a different nationality when we literally have all, all have the same ancestors? We are all rooted in the same one. You know, this racism, of course, has been something that has been universal uh, in the history of mankind. But real excuse came for it when Darwin came along and talks about evolution and survival of the fittest. And suddenly the white man says, I'm the fittest. You know, and you have uh, people like uh, Cecil Rhodes going off to South Africa and, and, and establishing a supreme white race that is trying to bring the British into supremacy down there and throughout all of Africa. And, and, and such a thinking didn't even escape impacting missionaries like David Livingston, who throughout his career, although he was a man of God, had a very paternalistic attitude towards the natives with which he worked. He always looked sort of down at them, probably unconsciously so. Uh, thinking of them as inferior, he finally decided the only way you can really win these Africans to Christ is to make Britishers out of them first. Otherwise, they can't understand the gospel. 
Livingston needed a good encounter with uh, the, the School of World Missions down there in Southern California, that is uh, David Winter's organization, and, and to run into the writings of Don Richardson and, and to talk about the peace child and some of these other things. Then he would had a whole different view, probably. But God used him nevertheless. God opened Southern Africa through the work of David Livingston. God uses us with all of our warts and everything else. Fortunately, right? Fortunately. And we dare not dwell uh, on, on all the bad parts of, of the men and women of the past because every one of them has had something that was worthy of criticism, I suppose, as you look at their lives in detail. We don't want anybody to scrutinize our lives in such detail and broadcast it or publish it, right? The descendants of Noah. We are all descendants of Noah. And we have no right to consider ourselves a supreme, superior people because of our color, or our race, or our nationality. But evolution gave birth to, the, to social Darwinism. And social Darwinism impacted things like the social gospel. And, and, and these ways of looking at, at mankind that literally generate people like Adolf Hitler who comes along and says, we are the supermen. I don't know what he meant by we, because he not only wasn't tall, blonde, and blue-eyed, he was short, dark, and Austrian. But nevertheless, that's the blind eyes of those who don't know God. Let's look at the emphasis here in verse 9. Upon what kind of a character was this man Noah? First of all, we discover that he was righteous. This word is used to describe God and refers to an attribute of God. God is righteous. In fact, we are told so in, in, in specific terms in many places in Scripture. For example, in Psalm 11 it says, The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Therefore, when this term is applied to men and women, to you and to me, it means that we should begin, therefore, to see, God, see things the way God sees them. That we should begin acting the way God would act in that particular situation. How would Jesus do it? You've heard sermons like that, wouldn't you? Haven't you? When you're in a particular situation, you don't know what to do, just ask yourself the question, now what would Jesus do here? kind of straightens a lot of things out if you know about Jesus. <laughs> I mean, if we really know him, now we can even distort him and say, well, but you know, he, he loved everybody, and so he would have kind of bent here or bent there. Hmm. Righteousness produ is produced by conformity to God's standards. We cannot generate it in ourselves. It's imputed by God, and it creates in us a desire to begin to conform to his ways. As you look back through the pages of church history, you discover how so many beat their heads against the wall of trying to be righteous without having righteousness imputed to them to begin with. They're trying in the flesh to create righteousness, and it's impossible. We can't make ourselves good enough. We, we had a... A Jewish Christian speak at chapel the other day, Abraham Sandler, who's sort of the principal 
a missionary to the Jews uh, amongst the Christian Missionary Alliance. And he grew up as a Hasidic uh, Jew. And he didn't come to know Christ until he was a teenager. So he lived in that home where they were teaching you how to live according to the 613 or whatever it was laws. And if you live up to those 613 laws, then maybe God will accept you. And, and he mentioned the fact that when his mother and his father prayed, and they prayed so earnestly in tears and everything, went up, and he said, now, did God hear you? And they say, well, we hope he heard us. <laughs> he said, that wasn't good enough for me. I don't want to hope. Reminds me of Martin Luther. Martin Luther had a terrible sin problem in his life, and he could, no matter what he did, how many times he climbed the stairs on his bare knees or, or, or did all the genuflections he was supposed to do, he could not feel clean. He couldn't feel clean. Are forgiven. Now, maybe he was depending too much on his emotion, whatever, but he had this sense of unrighteousness until finally the Scripture dawned on him and his heart was opened after he'd been teaching the book of Romans that the just shall live by faith, period. And suddenly, of course, that was an act of illumination by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit just opened his eyes so he finally saw what it meant. There are many teachers of this book who don't know what they're teaching. They're teaching about God, and they're teaching what it says here, but they've never experienced the truth of the liberty that comes from the Word, of suddenly having your, the veil lifted and, and, and your eyes are open and you see. Through a glass darkly, yes, as Paul says, but at least we see. Noah saw. His sight was limited, of course, because he didn't have the Holy Writ in front of him as you and I have today. He didn't have the same indwelling Holy Spirit, or I should say maybe a different way, but he didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling in him the same way we do as Jesus sent the Comforter when he went up to heaven, but he had the Holy Spirit nonetheless. So righteousness leads us to conformity to God's standards, obedience to his word, and it involves serving him. Let me read Malachi 3.18. Malachi 3, verse 18. Malachi is at the very end of the Old Testament, I'm sure you, you know. So you will again distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. We want to know a definition of who is righteous and who is not righteous. The one who serves God is righteous. The one who does not serve God is unrighteous. It's as clear as that. I won't say as simple as that because it's not simple. But nevertheless, it's that clear. If we are righteous and righteousness has been imputed to us, we had better be serving God. Now, that doesn't mean we have to be in the pulpit, but it means that day by day our desire should be to accomplish his will through us, whatever that may be for that day. Maybe that day all he really wants from you is, is, is some time of solid prayer. I shouldn't say all he wants. That's really very difficult. Really, as you've heard many times, prayer is the most difficult thing for us to do. But whatever it might happen to be. Now, that righteousness requires a new heart. Now, we're familiar with that because of the, of the teaching of the New Testament, the New Covenant. Jesus in John 3, speaking to Nicodemus, said, you must be born again. But it also says this in the Old Testament. Let's look at Ezekiel chapter 36 as an example. 
Ezekiel 36, verse 25. This is not the only Old Testament example, of course. Ezekiel 36, 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That sounds like it could come right out of the New Testament. See, the New Testament and the Old Testament really are all the same word of God. And I really feel sorry for those who feel that the only thing they need to study is the New Testament. The Old Testament is just kind of archaic and doesn't apply. They've never really studied it if that's what they believe. I've taught completely through the Old Testament, and as I did so, it just came alive. And the parallels with the New Testament are just multitudinous. And every single doctrine of the New Testament is found in the Old Testament. Secondly, we discover in this passage in Genesis that Noah was blameless. The Hebrew word here implies completeness, soundness, being without defect, perfect. Now, perfect in what way? We know that none of us is perfect in the absolute sense, and neither was Noah. It means a perfect standing in the eyes of God, that the righteousness of God had been imputed to him so that as God saw him, he saw him as perfect in the perfectness of Christ. Now, God well knew that Noah was a man capable of sin. And you and I all know that Noah was not perfect because especially when we get to the ninth chapter, we discover him in a very awkward situation. And it was a situation of great sin in which he, he contributed to the sin of one of his own sons. And yet, he was perfect. Now the scripture says that even Lucifer was perfect until unrighteousness was found in him. The word is also used of another man. Let's turn to the second chapter of Job for a second. Job 2, 3. Then the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Now, again, remember, God is not asking for information here. He knows Satan's heart as well as he knows our heart. He knew what Satan had been considering, and he knew why Satan was there. He simply wants him to respond. For there is no one like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. And he still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to ruin him without cause. That God was willing to step back and let Satan do his dastardly deed. And then thirdly, we're told in Genesis 6 that in addition to being righteous and blameless, that he walked with God. He faithfully walked in God's pathway, the pathway that God revealed to him. And God made it very clear to him what that pathway was. You must build an ark and you must preach righteousness to this wicked generation. 
Now, we know that it says that another man walked with God that we talked about recently, and that was Enoch. And what happened to Enoch? God took him. Oh, thank God he didn't take Noah. Think about it. We wouldn't be here to think about it <laughs> if God had taken Noah. Does that mean that Enoch was more righteous than Noah? Noah. <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> Enoch was taken by God because he was righteous because God had a plan in that. Noah was equally righteous with, en uh, with Enoch, but God kept him here because he had a plan for Noah. And Noah, of course, became a type of Christ in the sense that he would be the Savior or a Savior of the human race with a small s. The Savior was God because he's the one established the plan. But the human agent here was Noah, and God worked through him. Just as God brought you, if you, if you know Christ, to himself, but he may have used a human agent to lead you there. And in a way, that person becomes the small S Savior, the person who, who pointed you to the big S Savior. That person didn't save you, but he was God's agent. And so it was with Noah. God raised him up so that God, through Noah, could extend mercy to the human race. If God had taken Noah, the end of the world would have been complete at that time. But that wasn't God's plan. Very interesting thing to note here. Back in the early part of the sixth chapter, you remember it talks about the men of renown? Great men, men of renown. How many of them do you know today? Can you name a one of them? No. All of the people and all of their deeds and everything they had built and done before the flood was totally obliterated. Nothing was left. The men of renown are not men of renown today, but is Noah a man of renown? Oh, yes. The man who did righteousness is the one who is a man of renown. All of those great men, however big their stature was and how many kingdoms they conquered, they're not even known to us today. Their names are totally gone, all wiped out. But all Noah did was save the human race. Sin was not wiped out by the flood, was it? Noah and his family were sinners. So the infection was carried on, but it was greatly retarded by the flood. Think about it for a moment. Even though we know how uh, prevalent sin is today, Think about the fact that it's at least three times, we don't know how many times, the length of time since the flood that, it, that was before the flood. However many years it was before the flood, a millennium and a half or whatever, uh, it's been a lot longer time since that period, and yet we have not quite achieved that same level of evil. We're working on it, but we haven't arrived yet, fortunately. I think... We're closing in on it, though, very rapidly. Let me wrap it up with this. How bad really were the conditions on the earth in the days of Noah? Well, we're told in the 11th verse and the 12th verse of this particular passage 
that the earth was corrupt. Now, the Hebrew word here literally means gone to ruin, gone to destruction, gone to the pit, if you will. We'd say the world had gone to hell. Let me just quickly read a couple of uh, passages from the Psalms. Psalm 16, verse 10 says this, For thou wilt not abandon my soul to Sheol, neither wilt thou allow thy Holy One to undergo decay. And the same word is here, to corruption, to ruin. You will not allow your Holy One to go to corruption or ruin. Even though that is looked upon as messianic, it still will apply to us. Because we have been made holy ones in Jesus Christ, we will not suffer corruption, destruction, decay, ruin in the ultimate sense. Then in Psalm 73, we read beautiful words. No, not Psalm 73, that's coming up. Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, this is verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your diseases, who he, your iniquities, and heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction, ruin, the pit, decay, and who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, satisfies your, your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. Corruption. The whole world had gone to hell. The whole world, only Noah and his gang. Then finally it says, the earth was filled with violence. Now this is not, the, the, the word used for violence here does not mean violence like an earthquake or violence like a tornado or violence like a hurricane. It refers to violence which is perpetrated by malicious, evil, vile intent of the human mind. The most awful violence you can think of. I mean, we can be hit by a hurricane and we don't think well of it, but at least we don't sense that it's malevolent in the sense that this passage is intending it. Psalm 11, verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. And that's the same kind of violence here. Not, not, not the violence of, a, of an accidental co collision on the highway where somebody is killed, but where there is evil, vile intent. The wickedness of the heart has overflowed. Psalm 73 Verse 6, Therefore pride is their necklace, the garment of violence covers them. Their eyes bulge from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high, they have set their mouths against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. Their tongue parades through the earth. How many people do we have today whose tongues are parading through the earth? Many of them, of course, are in the capitals of the nations of the world. Violence flows forth. I didn't put this on the outline, but this is the last thing I'll read. 
Hosea 4.1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land, because there is no faithfulness or kindness or knowledge of God in the land. There is swearing, deception, murder, stealing, and adultery. They employ violence so that bloodshed follows bloodshed. Therefore the land mourns, and everyone who lives in it languishes, along with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and also the fish of the sea disappear. I mean, it sounds like a, a statement back of the actual time we're talking about. Unfortunately, on a smaller scale, the events that took place in Genesis 6 are repeated over and over again. And unfortunately, they're being repeated in our land today. Well, next Sunday, we'll pick up at that point on your outline.